It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window. This is the podcast that not only takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football, but brings you insight and analysis of the issues that matter every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are pundits extraordinaire Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. Well, it's your questions answered, of course, today. And we'll start with a question from Kevin Lindley. He's asked, Mbappe or Neymar will either move in the summer? I think, um, I think one of them will move in the summer. Um, uh, as you know, as we, bro- we broke the story on here that... Um, Real Madrid have prioritised Neymar's signing in the summer. They've been working on that move. It's quite far advanced. Um, obviously, the, the biggest hurdle is getting Qatar to accept the deal. Um, as we said on Monday, there might be a proposition in where they could uh, allow Thibaut Courtois to join Paris Saint-Germain and offer PSG, um, the world-class goalkeeper they've been looking for for several seasons, um, on a plate. Um, as part of that deal. Um, but for sure, Neymar wants to move. For sure, Madrid want to sign him. Um, the finances are in place. Uh, the block is getting the approval from Qatar. Kylian Mbappe, I think there is no chance of that. Um, Florentino Perez has said he wants to sign both players, albeit with a, with a hint of irony in his voice, but it's actually uh, an, an honest answer. He would like both players. Um, I th- there is in my view, zero chance that Qatar will allow Mbappe to leave. He's become the central figure in that team. He is more important to that team than Neymar. Um, He's younger, he's French, he's uh, from Paris. Um, He chose Paris Saint-Germain over Madrid when he had the option. In fact, had agreed uh, personal terms and had agreed to go to Madrid. He backed out of that deal uh, to go to Paris instead as he felt it was better. Um, for his career and he didn't want to be coming into Madrid um, at a time when it looked like he was going to be seen as Cristiano Ronaldo's direct replacement, didn't want the pressure of that. I don't think it's the time for him to leave even if um, Qatar were to allow it to happen. So I think if you put all of those points together and especially with Madrid having such, such focus on getting Neymar, you know, there, I've, I've said there's zero chance of them getting Mbappe, there's less than zero chance of them getting both together from from a, a great rival and, and a, a you know a, a nation state project, which is Qatar's ownership of Paris Saint-Germain. The thing with Mbappe as well, Duncan, is that um, everyone that I know in football who has um, come into contact with him, with his family, um, even during the negotiations which took him from Monaco to PSG in the first place, as well as that period which was, um, I think, quite distracting for him um, when... Uh, Riamrud's lawyers were exploring the possibility of terminating the loan contract um, that initially took him from Monaco to PSG. Um, is that he's very grounded. He is a very humble uh, player, a very humble personality, um, who his only 
unlike I, I think we could contrast Neymar on this, his only ambition is to be the best possible footballer he can be. And he's very young still. He doesn't believe that he needs to move at this moment in his career. I think it's very obvious from what we've seen of Mbappe uh, in the last two seasons and, and even at Monaco as well, um, when they had that great Champions League run, is that he has the potential to become the next Cristiano Ronaldo. That's for sure. Um, in terms of um, his ability, his pace, his build. So many things are very, very similar to Cristiano. And of course, more than anything, his commitment to his career as well. His commitment to being the very best. So for Mbappe, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that, that moving now is, is on the cards. What I see in terms of the bigger picture here is that for the first time, I think, the Qatari owners of PSG are beginning to realise that Paris is, d despite the money, uh, despite the uh, prestige, despite uh, obviously uh, living, uh, working in a beautiful city like Paris, is still regarded a little bit of a backwater in terms of elite clubs in European football. Their elimination of the Champions League at early stages um, since the, the takeover and despite the enormous investment has become a problem for them. Uh, the fact that they play maybe, I don't know, 16, 20 meaningful games per season is a problem in a sporting sense for the players that they have brought in to the club. Um, and they're now beginning to have contract rows with players at the club, as well as the very, very real possibility of losing um, you know, their amazing uh, jewel in the crown, uh, Neymar, uh, to Real Madrid, who obviously are the opposite of uh, the nouveau riche PSG. They are the, the ancient regime uh, of football, if anyone is, uh, in terms of their power, their tradition and their history. So, um, interesting question. Uh, and, and, you know, we're always grateful for our listeners um, coming up with these. So, I agree with Duncan on this one. I think Neymar possibly both, definitely not. And I wouldn't see Mbappe leaving, even if Neymar stayed. Okay, we've got a question now from Brett Ramirez. He's asked, with Real, Barca, Bayern, etc., already securing players for the summer, why have United been so poor in the last three transfer windows? Late signings at best, especially with a huge scouting team. Will Ole Gunnar Solskjaer face the same fate as Mourinho in this transfer window? I think it's slightly unfair in Manchester United in saying that they've been late signings at best. Uh, they were actually very quick at doing deals in Mourinho's first summer um, and um, you know, they were more organised in the recruitment than they had been um, for the rest of the Edward era. However, the general assessment of them being poor in the transfer market, absolutely agreed with, um, something we've discussed on here on many occasions. Um, I think the, the huge scouting team that Brett mentions is actually a problem. Um, we've talked about how that scouting team was hired by Ed Woodward um, using um, management consultancy company in London to do a search for scouts. Uh, I think it's probably the biggest and most expensive scouting team in world football. Um, it's not very good. <laughs> other other um, scouts at other clubs are not impressed with what Manchester United do, the inefficiencies of the way they work. And more importantly, um, Jose Mourinho was unimpressed with what, uh, what the scouting team was producing and uh, would use an independent consultant 
um, to uh, cross-reference the proposals he was getting from the scouting team and then provide um, uh, alternatives to them, uh, which ended up being a large part of the conflict between him and Woodward and the reason why the last transfer window was so bad because Woodward obviously wanted to trust the scouts that he had uh, spent so much money recruiting. Um, I don't think that's going to go away. Um, there may be a out for Manchester United if they get a director of football in place because the, that director of football would be a Woodward appointment and would come with um, the authority involved in being a Woodward appointment and would potentially have the ability to override the scouting team or at least direct their efforts in a different fashion and say, uh, no, um, these are the, the players we should be going for. Um, so that, that could help United get out of this problem situation they've got. Um, but you still retain the issues of negotiation tactics, you still retain the issues of this obsession with um, social media profile, uh, commercial value of the players. Uh, you still have the fundamental problem that Woodward keeps handing uh, new contracts to players who are not of sufficient quality for Manchester United. So he um, blocks up the wage bill um, and blocks up space at the training ground um, you know you don't want to most managers will tell you they don't want um, overly large squads because they become difficult to handle um, on the training pitch and around the training ground guys who are not getting playing time etc just creates issues um, and i think the fundamental thing here is that I, as we've said many occasions one of the things that all solskjaer has in his favor in terms of getting the job is he's perceived as being um a, a more passive figure in the transfer market. He desperately wants the job. He was the outsider uh, when he was appointed. He's now become the fans' favourite. Um, but he will not, clearly will not um, produce the kind of demands on the club that uh, Mourinho did, or as you would expect, a coach of Mourinho's standard or uh, status if he was to be hired in, in Solskjaer's place to make upon the club. So I don't think the solution is going to be Solskjaer saying, uh, Ed, I'm not happy with what the scouting team's proposing. I want to go for this player instead. And Solskjaer pushing and pushing and pushing until he gets the right player in. And, you know, one, one other further point on this is, as we mentioned, just after Solskjaer was appointed as the interim manager, his own record in the transfer market as a manager is really poor. If you look at what he did when he came in at Cardiff, the money that was spent, um, significant sums for Cardiff City to try and keep them in the Premier League on um, Norwegian players with uh, direct links to his own agent who played very few games for the club. Um, it's not impressive. So I... In summary, I'd say I don't see this problem going away. I think it's structural, it's fundamental at Manchester United. If they get the right director of football, they can start working on it. But it's mid-March already. You know, this is, We're already two months beyond when well-organised clubs have got their recruitment team and the recruitment strategy in place for the next season. And at United, we're talking about, albeit they're looking at players, albeit they've had discussions with Solskjaer who, about who he thinks should come in. They're also still talking about bringing the director of football in during that period, which is, for well-organised clubs, the most important part of the recruitment window. The thing, I mean, we should probably set out um, 
for everyone is the, the method that is now commonplace in terms of football recruitment. Uh, and by that, obviously, I mean transfers of players. Generally speaking, and this is certainly true of my United to a large extent, there are two ways uh, where they explore the possibility of signing a player. Uh, one is that the manager or scouting stroke coaching staff um, recommend a player um, who they believe will be good, a uh, good fit for the, the team or the squad. And the second is that the manager uh, stroke coaching staff tell um, the club what positions they want or need to recruit in to make the, the squad stronger. And here's the big thing that happens next. And this is the one I think which, you know, is problematic. That information, whether it's on an individual player or a position in the team, goes to the statistical analysis team. And they run their, usually, a bespoke software to check out every single thing that they can about this player's um, career so far, his recovery time from injury, his biometric testing, how many red cards, how many yellow cards, what's his playing time, what's his goals expected, what's his, you know, everything that you see in terms of stats these days. That's then handed back to the people in charge at the club and they look for the value in what that player might cost and what his contract is and what it might cost them going forward to get him a contract, which is then passed back to the coaching staff. And they're basically told or to make a decision. Do you want the guy you asked us for based on these stats? Because we've got you four other options who may be cheaper or maybe the more expensive, but more value, et cetera, et cetera. And then this is where it gets a little bit grey and murky. Because what used to happen, and I'm not saying this was the best idea um, or, or the best way to do it, was that managers, <laughs> I mean, how old-fashioned is this? They went to a game and watched the guy play. Unbelievable. Who would do that these days? Just get a piece of showreel on YouTube and it'll show you how brilliant he is. Or go watch him play. Watch him play in a system that either suits you or doesn't. And afterwards, go and meet him in a hotel with his agent and talk to him and look him in the eye and make a decision based on your gut instinct as to whether this guy can play for Manchester United or anyone else for that matter. That doesn't happen. Not nearly enough. And what Duncan's saying about Manchester United's um, investment in a scouting system is correct. It's in fact... Everyone wants the ear of the guy who makes the money decisions because they're all on commission if they sign a player that they recommend. They get a finder's fee. So you've got recommendations coming in left, right and centre, goes to the stats analysis team, then they come up and this process happens 10, 20 times a week at every Premier League club. And you wonder why clubs spend excessively and, and poorly on players who don't fit either their club or their squad or fit in, or even manage to actually uh, acclimatise and integrate into sort of you know the English game stroke social way of life. So when it comes to Manchester United, they, they sort of put the cart before the horse when Ed Woodward decided to employ a massive scouting network decided upon by headhunters. What they should have done is actually asked the coaching staff and 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 the and that, by that I mean the manager as well. How would you like to build this? How should we move forward and get best value, best players into this club? Because they're the ones who actually will lose their job if that player doesn't perform. The buck will always stop with the coaching staff and the manager. And yet they're being provided with players who they didn't ask for and they didn't actually recommend. But stats analysis teams recommended 
And then the guys who make the, the decision said, yeah, we'll take him instead. So, listen, it's worked brilliantly for Liverpool, this way of working, as we've discussed on the podcast before, in terms of their stats analysis, guys. They've got it absolutely right. But they also send people to watch the player and talk to him and talk to his family or his agent and everything else. What other clubs don't do is put that bit of personal input in. And as I say, you end up with you know, a player like maybe Lindelof or Alexis Sanchez, who have failed to integrate. Sanchez in particular um, has been an absolute flop for the money that's been invested in him and his future contract. And one of the reasons was, OK, maybe they don't have to watch him play, but if they'd asked properly about what his mood swings are like or his background or where he's like to walk his dogs, then they might not have spent the money. And so that's one of the things that people probably don't really know about, but that's how things work in football clubs. Okay, we've got a question from Suraj MV. He's asked, with City under investigation by many authorities, I think it's four now, how severe, if any, will be the punishments on them, considering the fact they're going for the quadruple this year? Well, that's the... $200 $200 million question in, in this case, that's what everyone wants to know, is how severe the punishments will be. I think um, there will be punishments now. I don't think there's any escaping that for Manchester City. Um, they're, you know, as we mentioned in the podcast, they've got the quadruple of all four football authorities investigating them at the moment, FA, Premier League, UEFA and FIFA. Um, Martin Lipton, um, recent, last week had a story on the uh, FIFA investigation of the city's signing of underage players and uh, his report was that, that in the next days um, FIFA would uh, impose a two-window transfer ban upon Manchester City. Um, that would fit with what FIFA have done in every other instance of severe transgressions on the recruitment of underage players. It's what Barcelona, um, Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, and most recently Chelsea received. So um, it seems uh, right that uh, that that's what's gonna happen. The question there was whether FIFA will allow them to suspend uh, the transfer window ban, uh, which something they didn't allow Chelsea to do, which I think Chelsea will appeal to CAST to to try and give them one more uh, window before their ban comes into place. Um, obviously, the big one is the UEFA financial fair play investigation. Um, there are lots of people in UEFA who want to see um, the maximum penalty possible applied upon Manchester City for those transgressions, uh, which would be exclusion from the Champions League. Um, I think there is a possibility it might be exclusion for more than one season. Um, but. That, as I say, is the big one. It's the one that City are, are going to fight against. Um, I think it was a notable article uh, in the Mirror um, last week from Simon Mullock, a journalist who's very close to Manchester City, um, with a briefing uh, from a club source, which is the first time I've heard or seen any a club source being re- uh, reported uh, rep- their comments on this being reported. It seemed City basically avoided off-record comment on this. And it was it was very bullish. I mean, I'll quote what, what Simon reported, which was, plans are being drawn up and pursued for the next 5, 10, 20 years and beyond. If anything, the allegations made against us 
and the subsequent hysterical reaction they have caused has made the club's owners and executive even more determined to turn City into the club that the Abu Dhabi United group envisaged when they took over 10 years ago. We are not going to go away. Now, I've no doubt that's accurate, given uh, the journalist who's reported it. Um, I'm intrigued to know whether UEFA and the Premier League have seen that and noted it, because that's a very, very brave thing for Manchester City to be saying at this stage um, with the evidence that's been presented against them um, and with decisions not made on punishment by the Premier League, by UEFA, um, with other Premier League clubs pressuring um, the Premier League to take action. Um, and the Premier League's options would include the docking of points, um, possibly for this season, although I doubt they will do that, as we discussed the other week. Um, but certainly um, they could uh, put a, a, a negative points total on Manchester City um, for the next campaign, whether they, whether they to find them guilty and feel that that level of punishment is required. So um, I think City are brave to be even off the record briefing things like this at a time when there is so much pressure. And, and you know, clubs haven't gone public on this because it's a difficult thing for them to do so. It's an embarrassing thing for a club to say on the record, we want to see Manchester City punished because we think they've been breaking competition rules. It's unfair. Something has to be done about it. Everyone else... Um, uh, signed up to these rules and we go along with these rules and we, we designed our um, commercial strategies, our revenue strategies, our transfer strategies around it and it's not fair uh, if one club just ignores them and does what they think they, um, is acceptable because they don't like the rules themselves. But those clubs, although they're not saying anything publicly, there is a lot of pressure on UEFA and the Premier League to act on this. Um, and I, I think the severity of the punishments could be the biggest we've seen um, for a football club of this status. But um, there's no doubt that City, and they have a lot of financial leverage here, they have a lot of political leverage, they've threatened the use um, of lawyers uh, in the past, um, will fight it. Um, and the question is going to be how brave um, the authorities are in taking action against them. And this week, Duncan, is a very, very important one, actually, for Manchester City regarding <clears throat> excuse me, the financial fair play allegations in particular because uh, there will take place a meeting between the European Clubs Association, which is basically the top elite clubs in Europe, and UEFA this week, substantially and uh, in terms of agenda, to discuss the um, Champions League uh, changes where they will um, talk about having weekend matches in the Champions League and therefore uh, suspending domestic competition league games uh, to be played in midweek instead, as well as other changes to, to the tournament format, designed, of course, to increase the revenues, ostensibly for the elite clubs, because they're the ones who, are, you know, uh, consistently make it to the latter stages, etc., etc. Now, like any meeting, um, in a political environment and, and you know let's not underestimate just how hawkish and political uh, these meetings are i've been around them and most of the actual important and decisive conversations don't take place in the main committee room they take place in the side meetings in the meetings over coffee in you know in the hotel lobby or whatever and what will happen uh, is that manchester city 
will go very strong-handed to this meeting and will argue and they will uh, canvas and they will politic everyone, not just the UEFA officials, but other leading club administrators to say, this could be you. You know, this could be you facing financial fair play. This could be you facing a Champions League ban. This could be you facing a transfer ban. Um, we need to stick together. We're not going away. That's true. Um, and I think it's, that was a very, very um, bold statement that you quoted, Duncan. Um, bold or foolish, is, you know, we'll see which it is. Because from my hearing, um, speaking to... Um, people in administration in, in big clubs in the ECA, um, they want City made an example of because they do believe that wrongdoing has taken place and the obfuscation and distraction has been employed in terms of their finances. And they want City to be punished for that. Uh, and in doing so, they will accept the consequences for what happens to maybe them in the future. Um, but they want a playing field to be levelled. And this is not just about City, of course. This is also about the Qatar ownership of PSG um, and how that has affected football and indeed inflated the transfer market so exponentially in the last two years. <clears throat> so look out for, you know, as I said, for what comes out of um, the UEFA technical uh, meeting this week regarding uh, Champions League changes because... What happens, as I said, not on the agenda is going to be more important than what happens when they decide whether to play matches on Saturday and Sunday. Just a little bit on that, um, the, the idea of playing weekend Champions League matches. That was something that was flagged up by a friend of the podcast, uh, Roger Mitchell, um, several weeks ago. Um, and uh, the initial response was that it was untrue. Um, I think UEFA had was a few stories published saying, no, this isn't going to happen. But... Um, UEFA have confirmed uh, Wall Street Journal's reports this week that as part of this ECA UEFA executive meeting, there will be uh, an informal brainstorming session um, regarding club competitions post-2024 um, on Tuesday, in the Tuesday meeting. Um, so uh, you can take from that that they are uh, they're looking at some serious alterations uh, to the Champions League um, and um, we've got a consensus until 2024 but um, after that five year time we might be getting big alterations uh, with the possibility of Champions League moving to the weekend. I think they're also going to be discussing um, relegation and promotion from the Champions League and a kind of the possibility of a Super League uh, style setup. Okay, well, we're going to move on to the Donkey Awards now. Um, as usual, Ian will give us the nominees and Duncan will choose the winner. This week, we are looking at the Gianni Infantino Award for outstanding interference into something that's sacrosanct to every football fan. Ian, who are your nominees? Just uh, open up the golden envelope here. <clears throat> I think this is one of our um, most uh, intriguing ones. I mean, everyone likes a villain in football, don't they? And uh, Mr. Infantino uh, bears an uncanny resemblance to Dr. Evil, unlike anyone else on this podcast. So, uh, the first nomination is indeed Gianni Infantino for the introduction of VAR. <laughs> um, I don't have to say any more than that because I know where it's coming with the seven iron. Uh, the second <laughs> nomination is Gianni Infantino for allowing the Qatar 2022 World Cup to take place in Qatar. And of course, 
the third nomination, which is the inspiration for the Gianni Infantino Award, is Gianni Infantino for a saying, or sorry, for um, condoning and indeed promoting that that 2022 World Cup will feature 48 teams in the tournament in the smallest nation state ever to host the World Cup tournament. I'll leave it to you, Dunkey, to decide the winner. Quite fr fr frankly, I've got no idea who's going to come out. Well, I think we've got our, um, our first joint winner of the Donkey Award because each of those transgressions are equally egregious um, and I think they could only have come from a man of Gianni Infantino's character um, who doesn't seem to place uh, the, the future development of football um, at the forefront, which is what he should do as a, a FIFA president. So um, Gianni Infantino wins his own award and, um, and our, our presenter shall have it sent to him forthwith. Yes, I shall get it sent off in the post. I wonder if you think Infantino has been better in the job than um, his predecessor, Mr. Blatter. Absolutely not. <laughs> no. That is in fact, uh, damning. Got, when, I, when I see Infantino, I've got an image of him being carried around in like a mini-me papoose around Sepp's. <laughs> Sepp wearing a papoose with Infantino in the you know, putting his little hands out going, yes, let's do that, Sepp. That's a great idea. Blatter... Um, certainly had his sins as a FIFA president. But uh, the one thing I was always conscious with, and I, I um, first met Seth Blatter in 2001, um, before the, uh, the World Cup in Japan, when I was working over there, and I had a few chances to speak to him there, and subsequently as FIFA president. One thing that was always clear to me from Blatter was he loved the game of football, and he, put, uh, he tried as much as possible to put the interests of football first. Yes, he made a lot of money from the game, um, yes, he had a very good lifestyle at the game. But I think that, for me, the key thing with Blatter is he's the man who was responsible for changing the rules of football to protect um, the quality players and um, to try and get the hatchet men out of the game. And I think we have him to thank for those rule changes which gave us uh, Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. And um, that's often forgotten. And I'd, I'd, I think I'd much rather have um, an individual of his type in charge of football, um, who gets the big decisions right, um, rather than some of the uh, the people who've been in charge of English football in the past, for example, who probably have been scrupulously honest but made horrendous decisions in in terms of uh, administration. Um, what's more important is the game, and um, I think that's that's where where Blatter did a good job. But is the rumour true, Duncan, that in those conversations you had with Sepp? It was your idea to say that women should wear tighter shorts in order to promote the women's game. <laughs> it's not true, but um, since you mention it, I was once charged by the Daily Mail with asking Arsene Wenger what he thought of um, uh, Seth Blatter's uh, suggestion that women should wear tighter shorts. And um, I wasn't able to get it in in the press conference, so I asked Arsene after the press conference um, as he was coming out of the room, what he thought about it, and he quite happily answered me, as, as was Arsene's style, uh, laughed about it and gave me uh, a nice little quote. And um, for, for, as a result of my endeavours, I was banned by the Arsenal press officer, I think for a month, for uh, daring to ask <laughs> the manager outside the official press conference. Oh, no. What, what did Mr. Wenger <laughs> say? I can't remember. He laughed about, about it. I'll, find, I'll dig the quote out and give it to you later in the week. I don't think the Daily Mail used the quote in the end, actually. 
pull on the press office. It could be. I didn't. I didn't hear about that. Okay, well, we're going to wrap this up, um, but fear not, we'll be back on Friday to fulfill all your podcasting needs. To continue the debate, you can contact us on Twitter, and we even have our own transfer window account at Transfer Podcast. If you want to speak to me, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, Ian is at Garbo SJ, and Duncan is at Duncan Castles. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this really helps us reach as many listeners as possible. Until Friday, thanks for listening.